Welcome to The Word at Work. This is episode two in a series on the Book of Kings. My name is Nathan Lovell. Uh, today we'll be looking at 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 13 to the end of chapter 4. Uh, in today's story, Solomon has the throne and we get to see how the early part of his rule works out. Uh, he has a surprising encounter with God. Uh, the first of four times in the book that God comes and speaks to Solomon directly. Uh, he has a dream, he's granted an amazing gift of wisdom, and by the end of the story today, uh, maybe we have a few questions about what kind of person Solomon is and what kind of kingdom he will build. Uh, as we did last time, you'll get more out of this if you've read that passage already. So if you haven't had a look at it, maybe you'd like to pause the video, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 13 to the end of chapter 4, uh, and come back once you've read that. There's a link below. Well, perhaps you'll remember the story of how Israel got a king in the first place. They didn't always have kings. Uh, they, Moses brought them out of Egypt. He wasn't a king. When the people got into the land, they didn't have kings. They had judges. But one day they decided that wasn't enough. They wanted a king to rule over them like all of the other nations around them. And so they called the prophet Samuel and they said that, Hey, Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations have kings. Uh, and that was their request. Now, the problem with this is if you're trying to build the kingdom of God, then are you really supposed to look like all of the other nations around you? God had brought his people out of Egypt, not so that they could just be another nation like all of the other nations. He brought them out so that they could be his holy people and a special nation uh, and mediate his blessings and his promises to the other nations around them. Uh, are they really supposed to have a king like all of the other nations around them. Uh, and really, this is Solomon's story in a nutshell. Like all of us, he's not always good, but he's not always bad. Uh, sometimes he's got a heart that really wants to follow God and desires to follow God. Uh, and sometimes he just does the wrong thing. And sometimes the best of intentions let him down and he ends up doing the wrong thing, even though he thought he was doing the right thing. Uh, it's a story of mixed motives and conflicted decisions. Uh, as Solomon gets the power in the kingdom, we read all the rest of chapter two. Uh, he basically just goes through and eliminates all of his political rivals. Uh, he begins with Adonijah, his brother. You'll remember the story from last time, how Adonijah tried to make himself king. So it's probably not a surprise that Solomon had him eliminated. Uh, Adonijah made the mistake of asking for Abishag, who you'll recall was the young lady they brought in to warm David. Uh, he eliminates Abiathar, who was David's priest. He eliminates Joab, who was David's general. He has all of these guys put to death. Uh, he eliminates this random guy named Shemai, uh, who once teased David because um, David told Solomon that he better get rid of that guy too. So Solomon's kingdom begins with a bloodbath. And maybe we're thinking, well, is this actually really necessary? I mean, from a point of view, can you imagine it really beginning any other way? I think if you're going to take the kingdom and you're going to establish yourself as king, then there's no point having all of these political rivals running around with alternate claims to being a king. That's just setting yourself up for trouble. But, you know, on the other hand, 
Is that really what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like? I can't help but hearing Jesus' words to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you kind of ringing out at this point. And this nagging feeling about Solomon that he's a good guy, but he's just not the right kind of good guy, I guess. This nagging feeling that we have about Solomon just never goes away. I want to focus on the story in chapter 3 because this is probably the most famous story in Solomon's life. Now, this occurs at Gibeah, uh, which is one of the high places. And before the temple was built, people used to go up and worship God just on the high places in Israel. And Gibeah is one of those places. Uh, So Solomon goes up to Gibeah one day, uh, and perhaps you know the story already. Uh, He falls asleep and he has a dream. Uh, Let me read to you a little bit, I think, actually. Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father, David, uh, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burned incense at the local places of worship. The most important of these places of worship was Gibeon. So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. And that night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, what do you want? Ask and I'll give it to you. Cool, right? What would you ask for? Um, Okay, well, put yourself in Solomon's shoes. You're probably not going to ask for a Ferrari. Uh, You're the king. Um, I don't know what you ask for. It turns out, though, that Solomon Solomon does really well here. Verse 7, here's his request. O Lord my God, you've made me king instead of my father David. But I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous that they can't even be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? Moses had actually said something really similar once and God had thought that was a good idea as well. God is very pleased with this request from Solomon. Uh, and that's probably why this story is, has been retold. The, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you've asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies. He'd already killed his enemies, if you think about it. Because you haven't asked for that, I'll give you what you have. I will give you what you've asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, such that no one else has had one or ever will have. And I'll also give you what you didn't ask for: riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commandments as your father David did, then I'll give you a long life. So think about it. God has given Solomon everything that he needs. He's given him kingdom building material. He's got wealth. He's got wisdom. He's got fame. uh, His kingdom is firmly established. Everything Solomon could have possibly wanted, everything he could have possibly needed to build a kingdom All that remains is to see how Solomon will use it. He wants for nothing. Uh, It's like the proverbial blank check. Here, 
Go and build yourself a house. Do whatever you want with it. Write whatever amount you want in this check. It's yours. That's what this dream is like. Uh, over the next couple of chapters, we see some examples of how Solomon's amazing wisdom works out in practice. There's a very famous story in the second half of chapter three, and perhaps you knew it already. Uh, two women come to Solomon. Both women are um, prostitutes, it tells us. They both have a young child, uh, but one of their children has died. Uh, presumably, they lived together, uh, but both of the women are claiming that the child that's alive is their child and that the child of the other woman has died. And of course, there's no DNA testing in those days and um, it's not that simple to figure out who the actual mother is. Uh, and so what is Solomon to do? Uh, and um, I, I don't know where he got the idea from, but he calls a guard and tells the guard, you know what, what we're going to do is we're going to cut the child in half and you can both take a half of the child and that'll be that. And of course, the child whose mother it actually is, uh, she laments and wails and says, no, 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 don't do that. Give the child to the other woman. And the other woman who, um, whose child had died, uh, she says, no, 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 you know what, that's fine because she's already callous. And because Solomon is able to kind of devise a way of testing what's in the women's hearts, uh, he's able to figure out who the real mother is and who the, who the lying woman is. And he gives the child not cut into to the real mother. And um, we're told when all Israel heard the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king for they saw the wisdom that God had given him for rendering justice. And there's no doubt that what Solomon is doing here is very good. Uh, a good king is a just king. It's somebody who can make laws that benefit all the people of their kingdom uh, and bring prosperity and peace to the kingdom. And there's no doubt at all that Solomon does that. Uh, we're told over and over again throughout chapter four. I mean, if you're reading it and you got to the officials and governors and things and you wonder what's going on there, it's, it's again, it's giving you examples of the wise way that Solomon set up his kingdom to function. So that even it looked like all the blessings that God had promised Abraham once upon a time were coming true. If you have a look at 4 verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They were very contented with plenty to eat and drink. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the river Euphrates in the north of the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt in the south. The conquered peoples of those lands sent tribute money to Solomon and continued to serve him throughout all his lifetime. He, he sets up this land so that Israel is so numerous that they're like the sand on the seashore, which is what God promised to Abraham. Or verse 29, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. And in fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the East and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including even Ethan the Ezrahite and the sons of Mahol, uh, Heman and Kalko uh, and Dada. And if you've never heard of those guys, then that's really the point of the story. You've heard of Solomon. Um, his kingdom is rich. It's wealthy. We're told that his daily food requirements for his palace, so he feeds everybody in his community, were 6.5 thousand litres of flour and 13 thousand litres of meal and 10 oxen uh, and 20 pasture-fed cattle and 100 sheep or goats. And that's what he did every single day. And the wealth and the prosperity 
and the um, and the abundance of what Solomon is able to do is astonishing. There's no doubt that this is a blessing from God, and even the Psalms reflect on it. There's a Psalm uh, written for Solomon's benefit. I won't read the whole thing. Psalm 72. I'll read you a couple of verses, though. It says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people and the hills the fruit of righteousness. And may he defend the afflicted amongst the people and save the children of the needy. Uh, And you can read that. It goes on uh, with a prayer for Solomon talking about his just rule, and the abundance of his provision. So at this point of the story, it seems like Solomon's doing a really good job. But we've still got that nagging kind of feeling from chapter 2, haven't we? That this really isn't how the kingdom should have begun in the first place. And this blank check that Solomon's got, it's like, you know, it's like having all of the builders and the material uh, turn up at your, at your empty block of land ready to build your house. And the bricks roll in and the concrete and the timber and the builders come and the tools are there and everything's ready to go. And it's all very impressive and there's hustle and there's bustle and there's noise. That's what the kingdom is like at this stage. But the house hasn't been constructed yet. Solomon has everything that he needs. He's ready to go and he's got the best of intentions. He's got a great blueprint to follow. And he can build whatever kind of kingdom he wants. He lacks nothing. But the question the book of Kings is putting to us is what will he do with all of this? What will it take to build the kingdom of God rather than building a kingdom That's just like all of the other nations. Do you remember? Give us a king like the nations, the Israelites said. And doesn't every nation want to look like this? Rich and powerful and prosperous? But recall again what God said to Solomon at the end of his dream. He said, I will also give you what you didn't ask for, riches and fame. And if you follow me, and obey my decrees and my commandments as your father David did, then I'll also give you a long life. Or perhaps you recall David's last words to Solomon from chapter 2. This was in last time. I'm going where everyone on earth must go someday. Take courage, be a man, observe the requirements of the Lord your God, and follow him in all his ways. Keep the decrees and the commands and the regulations and the laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in everything you do and wherever you go. Keep God's law so that you'll be successful in building God's kingdom. Now, there's no doubt wisdom and money and power help you to accomplish your goals. But what are Solomon's goals shaped by? Will he listen to the word of God and build the kingdom around the law that God gave his people? That's the question the book of Kings asks. You know what? The Bible asks us that question 
of our own lives as well. Maybe you'll remember Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain comes down and the streams rise and the winds blow and beat against the house, but it doesn't fall because it has a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains come down and the streams rise and the winds blow and the house falls and it falls with a terrible crash. And we know how kings ends, right? The rains are going to come on this kingdom that Solomon builds. And this house is going to fall with a terrible crash. What kind of kingdom are you building with the, with the wisdom and the resources that God has given to you? And what are we doing to make sure that what we build is founded on the rock, which is the word of Christ? Thanks for being with us. I'll see you next time.